You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Hot Topics in Allergy, presented by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. Your host is Dr. Todd A. Marr, Director of Pediatric Allergy Immunology at Gunderson Lutheran Medical Center in La Crosse, Wisconsin. What process does the FDA use to prove that medications are safe and effective? Joining us to discuss the FDA drug approval process is Dr. Warner Carr, allergist at Allergy and Asthma Associates of Southern California Medical Group in Mission Viejo, California. Welcome, Dr. Carr. That's a really good topic, and I look forward to covering it today. Tell me your background with the FDA before we get into some of the process here. Well, you know, I served as a a new drug reviewer in the Pulmonary and Allergy Drug Products Division, so my job basically was to interface between sponsors or companies or individuals that are trying to develop drugs and drug products and the FDA. So what does it take to get a drug approved? Actually, Todd, it it takes quite a bit to get a drug approved. There's a lot of research and and a lot of money that has to go into proving that these drugs are are safe and effective for the U.S. population. You know, in general, there are basically three phases that drugs have to go through. Phase one studies are studies that are done in healthy people. And these are purely safety studies just to show that when given this drug in healthy patients, first time in humans, that there's no really bad side effects. And, of course, this is after it's been extensively tested in animals and a a safety margin has been established. And then phase two studies are those kinds of studies that are done in people that have some form of disease. You know, in the setting of allergy, it would be allergic rhinitis or asthma or something along those lines. And in these studies, we really do what's called dose ranging, trying to find the definitive dose that is effective, also while maintaining uh, good safety and gathering safety data. And then finally, the phase three studies. These are the studies that we, we talk about are what, what's called the pivotal studies. These are the key studies that are done at multiple different sites across the United States and sometimes in the world to prove that a drug is safe and effective. And I want, I want to point out something very important, and that is when a drug is approved, especially a drug that comes in a, a container or a device, it's not just the active molecule that's approved. It's actually the active molecule, all of the stuff that's mixed in with it. We call those excipients, and then the device or container. So it's really a drug product. So you can see that there's really extensive testing that has to go into that. So that if a company wanted to change just the device that a product was in, they'd have to go through similar type testing all over again. Very similar type testing. It really depends if if the drug product is approved or not. But you're absolutely right. Absolutely right. If you change the device, what you've done is you've changed a component of this drug product and you've made a new drug product. So you need to do some type of bridging studies. For instance, let me give you an example. You know, historically, we used CFC albuterol, and we got HFA albuterol. Not only did that have a new excipient, a new propellant, that being HFA, but there also were new devices. So these companies had to do some safety and efficacy studies, but usually what we'll do is require bridging studies. And what that means is we have to show equivalence. We see this most commonly in, in something that has been branded for several years, and now a generic is going to come out. So you do some basic bridging studies to show that the generic is equal to the branded. So to answer your question, if somebody's coming out with a new device and everything else is exactly the same, they could do bridging studies. But still, these are extensive studies to show that it's not changed the safety or efficacy of the, of the drug product. 
So I think in asthma, one of the things we, we get asked a lot is, well, what about spacers with any of these inhalers? What I'm hearing from you is that basically the FDA requires the studies to have been done how that device comes out of the box, which is not with a spacer, correct? You know, that is absolutely correct. And I think that's very important that everybody understands that. When these products are approved, when these inhalers are approved, they are not approved with a spacer. If you use a spacer during the clinical studies, then you have to use that same exact spacer for approval, which means that that is the marketed drug product. And obviously, uh, pharmaceutical companies don't do that. And so the message should be that these drugs that are currently approved on the market and they are safe and effective, you don't need a spacer to get the same benefits that you see in the clinical studies. Now, in real practice, obviously, we know that sometimes it's best to use a spacer in pediatrics and patients that may not be able to coordinate that. So when you've actually started this process going as a pharmaceutical company, how long does it take? I mean, why does it take so long to get these drugs approved? Yes. So this process can take, first off, it can cost hundreds of millions of dollars. And it can take several years to get through this, the safety, the efficacy, and to do the pivotal studies and to have this information reviewed by the FDA in a timely fashion and get a decision back. This can take several, several years, typically somewhere in the range of five, maybe seven years, depending on, on what phase that you're in. Typically what happens is you have a discussion with the FDA when you file your initial application, and what that's called is an IND, and that stands for Investigational New Drug Application. So the IND is filed, you have a discussion with the FDA, and you tell them why you feel this is safe to give to people, and then if the FDA agrees, then you can do the studies. Once you have that data, you share that data with the FDA. You give them the rationale for why you want to go forward and why you want to use the particular dose or dose ranging in your Phase two studies. Then you do all of the Phase two studies, all of the dose ranging. Then you have to analyze that data. This can be very labor-intensive, very expensive, can take a tremendous amount of time, energy, and effort. And at the end of phase two, before you go into phase three, this is a very critical milestone in a drug development pathway. Usually there's a second set of meetings with the FDA called the end of phase two meetings. And at the end of phase two meetings, you, the pharmaceutical company will agree with the FDA on what the dose should be, what the study design should be, and the study design is so important because that can either make or break a, a whole program. And then from there, you go into those pivotal studies. I think you understand how important those pivotal studies are at this point because if you fail, sometimes you have to start over and you've lost hundreds of millions of dollars. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Hot Topics in Allergy from ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Todd Marr, and joining me to discuss the FDA drug approval process is Dr. Warner Carr, allergist at Allergy and Asthma Associates of Southern California Medical Group in Mission Viejo, California. Warner, what's the process then for a generic drug? We've seen that with fexafenidine and with fluticasone. Is that process then different? Yes. So the process is a little bit different for a generic. And the reason for that is that the branded product that's been out there for several years, the product that the innovator brought to the market and has been out there, it's already been shown to be safe and effective. 
So the burden of proof isn't the same. You don't have to show the same safety and efficacy data because it's already all there. What a generic product has to do is show equivalence, and that equivalence has to be to the branded product. You brought up an excellent example of fexofenadine. Fexofenadine, or uh, Allegra in the marketed form, a good antihistamine, been around for a long time. Now we have a generic. So what happens is patients will do small, short studies where patients will take fexofenadine and take Allegra, so the generic and the branded, and then various PK, which stands for pharmacokinetic, and PD, which stands for pharmacodynamic, so symptom scores and blood levels of the product, will be measured and in a blinded fashion as long as you can show that the generic is relatively equivalent to the branded, then you get approval. So much quicker. So much quicker and less burden of proof, but they still have to prove equivalence. Yes, that's important because here's the deal, Todd. This is really kind of interesting. If you come out with a generic and your generic is better than the branded product, it is a new drug because it has better efficacy, the concern is that there may be more safety issues. On the flip side, if you come out with a generic and it's not as good as the branded, then it's a new drug, because maybe the dose you've selected is not the adequate dose, and you're going to have to do more dose ranging. So you really do have to demonstrate some degree of equivalence. Interesting. So let's stay along the same thought process of, all right, the drug's approved, what should we be doing as clinicians? I mean, what about post-marketing studies and observations, things like that? I mean, what should we do? Yeah, that's a great question because, you know, I talked about this huge amount of data that has to be generated to get a drug approved. But if you step back for a moment and you really look at the number of people that are exposed to a drug during the clinical development before approval, you're only talking a few thousand. You know, we're talking thousands. That data, when it's approved, that data is extrapolated to the whole U.S. population. And so you can see that if there is something that's a rare event that could happen, it may never happen during the drug approval process. And we may only see that post-marketing. So it's very important, especially with new drugs, that if there are post-marketing events, if there are side effects that you discuss this, first off, discuss it with a patient. I mean, you should never be afraid to talk to the patient and be honest about it. And then this data should be given to the pharmaceutical company and it should be given to the FDA. Most pharmaceutical companies have a mechanism in place where you can talk to them and that information can be relayed to the FDA. In addition, you can always either go to the FDA website and report or call the FDA and there's uh, on the FDA's website there's phone numbers that you can call. So it's very important that if a device fails, for instance, if you have a nasal spray and it's broken, it doesn't work, it's not clicking, or an inhaler, the medicine's not coming out, or if there's a side effect, especially if it's not in the package insert, that information should be reported. It's very important. So I think that's interesting because it does fall on us as providers out there to really help with this drug approval process, not from the standpoint of getting it approved. It's already approved, but helping them refine that and letting our colleagues know eventually of a potential side effect or some other problem with the drug that, again, as you said, because of the volume now that is getting used as it's been approved, it, they might pick up some things that they didn't see. 
Yeah, that, you know, that is so important. Remember, when these studies are done, it's done in a very select patient population, and it's done in a highly controlled environment that's different from the clinic. It's a research environment, so everything is tightly regulated, and certain patients are excluded for whatever reason. So when you put this in the, gen- in the hands of the general public, so you give it to all the doctors out there. Remember, just because an allergy drug or an asthma drug is approved doesn't mean that only an allergy or asthma specialist is going to provide it. Everybody is going to prescribe it. Anybody that has prescribing potential is going to prescribe that drug. So it's very important that even post-marketing, the FDA will re- require studies. It, for instance, if there is a question, a signal if you will, that there may be a problem during the clinical development pathway, but the drug is approved, the FDA will require what's called phase four. Earlier, we talked about three phases to get a drug approved. Phase four is after marketing. There'll be phase four studies sometimes in much larger real life, if you will, patients to see if there's any safety concerns. And the FDA can always go back and make changes to a label based on adverse events that are reported or results of a phase four study. So we've seen that in allergy and asthma drug approvals, haven't we? Some recent changes in boxed warnings and labeling. And what about the, the older antihistamines and things? Yeah, these are classic, classic examples. Basically, you said two things. Number one, recent changes in, in labels with boxed warnings and so forth. There's a couple of drug products out there, mostly for asthma, that have had some changes to their label, and we're still waiting on some potential changes to some of these asthma medications that are coming out. And that comes from post-marketing studies and review of data. And you had brought up older antihistamines. Really, it depends on how old the antihistamine is. For instance, you recall that some of the older antihistamines that are no longer on the market were approved We thought they were great medications, and then we realized when they were taken with certain antibiotics, for instance, erythromycin or or erythromycin-like medications, patients had cardiac events, and there was even some arrhythmias and death. So those antihistamines were removed from the market. I would like to thank my guest from Southern California Medical Group, Dr. Warner Carr. Dr. Carr, thank you for being our guest this week on Hot Topics in Allergy. Oh, Todd, thank you. It's my pleasure. You've been listening to Hot Topics in Allergy, This show has been presented by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. For more information on the ACAAI, please visit acaai.org. For more information about this or any other show, please visit ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts. Thank you for listening.